Hi there, this is Kent Rowdy at USH Med Student. Together for another podcast, I have three third-year students with me. How about if you guys introduce yourselves again? I'm Cody. I'm a third-year from RVU. Hi, I'm Chris, and I'm also a third-year. I'm Becca, and I'm also a third-year from RVU. All right, now, Becca, this is a podcast that you developed, so you get to tell us a little bit more about yourself. Are you ready for that? Yes. Um, so I kind of have... What led me to this is I kind of have an interesting history. I was born in the United States, but spent probably about 10 years in Taiwan. And while I was there, I noticed a lot of differences as far as mental illness goes and the awareness that there is in the general public. Um, yeah, so I was really interested in looking more into that and how they, may, they might present after immigrating here and how they compare to just normal European Americans. So you and I started off with a, with a plan to look at um, treatment of depression in Asian American populations. And it was very fascinating because our, our first steps into this um, were very confusing, right? So let's, let's um, maybe right now kind of break away from this, how this podcast evolved to our high yield stuff. How does that sound? So, so you have an outline, and I really like this. We don't, we don't always mention this, but you've got a bullet point in your outline. And do you want to tell me a little bit about that bullet point about why maybe tackling depression is so important? Yeah, so I actually found in multiple studies that depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide, and that trumps all the, everything else. And even though you can't, you can't really quite see it, but I, I think it's, it just blows my mind how prevalent it is and how many people it affects and how debilitating it can be. It sounds like that's something you were not aware of before you started reading through these articles. Yeah, I didn't. I, mean, I knew it was um, a big portion of, um, I guess, our society, but I didn't think it was that big. I think one of the nice things about this, it, when you talk about the different studies that mentioned this, I think this came out of a WHO study, a World Health Organization study that was done some time ago, and I don't, I don't know when that was done. I don't remember It seems like I may have seen that at one point. It listed um, in, in order the illnesses that you know, cause the greatest mortality and morbidity in the world. And uh, I was surprised that it's a worldwide condition. I think it's easy for us to think, oh, this is a Utah County condition, or this is a Utah condition, or this is a Rocky Mountain States condition, or maybe this is a United States condition, or maybe this is a developed country's uh, condition, or um, when you start looking at how broad and how seriously this impacts people, I think it changes perspectives a little bit. I really like that you added that, because I don't think that's something we've ever mentioned before, the, the mortality and morbidity from, from depression. Now, uh, I would be remiss if we didn't add at least Siggy Caps to this uh, discussion about depression. We're gonna go down the rabbit hole with regards to depression in a very specific population, but depression is still depression, right? It's still the same criteria. And I think, Cody, you've, you've got not only Siggy Caps, but maybe something a little bit newer. Uh, yeah, so I'm basically, Siggy Caps is just, it's necessary to talk about no matter what, if you're mentioning depression and the criteria. So part of the criteria for depression for major depressive disorder is having they look at nine symptoms and you need to have five of those nine symptoms for at least two weeks and two of those symptoms you really that you need to have one of the of these two symptoms for it to be considered depression as well and those two so basically if you go through siggy caps it's sleep um, troubles interest loss also known as anhedonia guilt energy loss concentration issues appetite change, psychomotor slowing, and also suicidal ideations. Um, so that's what Siggy Caps comes from, which talks about those, those eight symptoms, but it doesn't bring up one of the important ones, which is depressed mood or the patient actually saying, I am depressed. And so there's another mnemonic um, that I just came across was DICE's GAPS. So this covers all nine of those symptoms, but it also has those two important ones that you need to have one or the other for it to be considered uh, depression. And the D, st that stands for the depressed mood, and the I 
stands for the interest loss or referring to the anhedonia. So I just thought that was interesting because we always talk about Siggy caps, but there's another one out there, Dice's gaps. I like that it rhymes, Siggy caps and Dice's gaps. And uh, so C is, is loss of concentration, I'm guessing. Yep. And then um, the E is energy. Yep. S is sleep. G is guilt. The A is for the appetite changes. Uh, P for psychomotor uh, slowing. And the S is for the suicidal ideation as well. Very, very good. So there was something that I, I want to jump out of kind of the board prep or the, the principles that we want to talk about for the shelf exam. And I want to go back to this development of this podcast. Rebecca, tell me about what you originally found. What was the, the first set of articles that you were reading? What, what did you see in those articles? So the main overarching theme that I found was that um, depression in Asian American populations might be underdiagnosed because patients who come into the clinic um, Will only will complain of somatic symptoms, saying their back hurts, they, they have headaches, they have um, GI symptoms, and they won't mention anything about their depressive symptoms. And um, physicians might take that as and just take it very purely as somatic symptoms and just treat that. And I wasn't surprised by that at all because that's kind of what I expected to find. And I found lots of articles um, talking about that. And but I was surprised to see that even though it was a fairly like recent article. It was citing data from like 1996, I think is when it was. Yeah, I, I was surprised too. I, I think you also sent me a number of um, kind of like opinion pieces or, or like um, sharpen your skill kind of articles rather than studies. And they would say things like, hey, we need to be culturally aware of the different populations and when Asian American populations walk in. And in some cases, Chinese American populations, which is I think where where we ended up being more specific when possible in this, in this podcast, uh, it had all these kinds of same things. And, and one other thing, in addition to it's all somatic, they would also say something along the lines of our patients from Asia are alexithymic, which means? Which means that they aren't able to um, recognize these depressive, their depressive symptoms. So the problem is our, our patients from uh, our Chinese American patients, our patients from Asia, simply don't know how they feel. And um, that got repeated quite a bit, didn't it? When we looked for, so, so most of this information that we saw, we looked and it was originally from what, about 2005. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I came back to you and I said, hey, let's, let's see how often this data is cited. Let's, let's try and track this down and see how this has evolved. This is a long time ago. And what did you find when we started trying to track down follow-up studies or, or where these uh, studies were cited? So I actually went and tried to narrow down my search criteria to more recent articles. And while I was doing that, I noticed there's a little bar chart telling you when these articles um, were written. And there's a huge chunk kind of from, I think around 2002, there was a big spike. And then you can just see there are no articles from around 2005 to 2009 and that's when it came back again. I think it was around 2009 when articles started popping up again. And then e even after that, when I was looking, it was sparse, just not very many articles. So we, we had a tough time finding good data on this. One of the things that I, I was thinking in the back of my mind, we over and over, we saw this idea that our, our uh, citizens here in the United States who um, are have either immigrated in or are first generation uh, children of immigrants from Asian populations. And this is broader than Chinese American, right? There's just, they don't access mental health care. We saw that repeatedly, right? Right. Um, but I think it's more than that. There was another study that I mentioned to you, a study by Dr. Ali, who looked at um, community cohesion. If a community is tightly knit, um, those communities tend to do a better job of, of getting into the doctor more than once a year or getting into the doctor at least once a year to check things like diabetes, cholesterol, and those kinds of basic chronic illnesses. And generally speaking, our Asian populations are not good at seeing the doctor, period, right? It doesn't matter whether it's mental health. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, cholesterol. It doesn't matter whether it's diabetes. It looks like this barrier to care 
is maybe the prominent factor in this. Despite that, there's a whole lot of studies that we looked at that tried to say, well, what other factors might be keeping people from getting care? And I think we found a few of those. So let's, let's maybe dive into to the things we can look at in the data that we did find and kind of see where that takes us. And I want to start with uh, the Chen article from 2015. I thought this was probably the best study. This was a study that was uh, done in the Boston area, as I recall. They had uh, somewhere around what, uh, 20, 25,000 people that came through a primary care clinic and they screened these patients with the, I wanna say the PHQ, but don't hold me to that. Yeah, it was the PHQ. It was the PHQ. Mm -hmm. They screened with the PHQ. They found about 1,000 patients that screened positive, um, a greater than 10 score on the PHQ. And they invited roughly this 1,000 people to participate in a study that was not about, not about depression, not about um, beliefs of Chinese American populations or Asian American populations that had immigrated. This was entirely a study looking at uh, culturally sensitive telepsychiatry versus treatment as usual, right? So, so it was treatment of depression through telepsychiatry was the original question. And out of this database, they pulled this population to try and, and give us some ideas about, about um, mental health attitudes in Chinese American populations. Now, interestingly enough, right off the bat, over half the people that were screened mm -hmm. positive said, thanks, but no thanks, I'm not interested. Another 110 roughly of this group said, hey, we're already being treated. And then 78 more were excluded. So at the end of the day, they had about 250 patients that they looked at and they actually did a diagnostic interview. And this is the thing I think I liked most about this study is instead of using uh, a screening tool, and we talked about sensitivity and specificity yesterday and some of the limitations of those screening tools. Um, this, this study actually used the MINI International Psychiatric Interview, also called the MINI, uh, and actually diagnosed uh, depression in about 190 people. So starting out with 25,000 people, they found 190 people to base this study on. And I think by far, this was the best study we found. Yeah, I agree. It was, it was the one study that I found that actually had like solid data and it wasn't it wasn't like speculation on why why this was happening or and it wasn't like kind of improving your your skills that you were saying that the articles that I initially found so I thought it was really interesting to see a study that actually had some evidence to back it up. I was amazed at how much work was done I mean it's it's very easy to criticize studies that have 190 people in them and yet the amount of work they went to to get that 190 patients I think was was really impressive to me now they as I understood this this uh, this group was following up on some data that was roughly 20 years old that had 29 patients out of the same clinic um, I don't know that that study from 29 years ago was also a telepsych study the way this one was, but it seemed to be kind of the same mindset, the same clinic. Hey, we had this data set from before. Let's see what's happening. So with that kind of background, tell me about the study. Tell me, tell me what happened. Tell me more about it. So they looked into, they actually gave um, another questionnaire after to the patients with the 190 patients that had a diagnosis of MDD confirmed by the, the mini. Um, and they gave them a questionnaire that basically um, was asking them um, some general questions and asking them to name the problem and and whether or not they would discuss it with others and also considered stigma. So it was a pretty complicated um, questionnaire that these um, patients would answer with six parts. And basically what they found is um, people were actually able to, to name a chief complaint that they were feeling depressed, they were feeling unhappy, and they were having, or they were having some mood problems. And that kind of contradict, contradicted what I saw in the in the articles I found before that said um, the Asian population weren't able to name um, symptoms of depression and were only able to name somatic symptoms. And I think it goes into a little bit more um, about, uh, they, they separated it out into um, what their stigma, what they thought stigma played a role in it and, and if they were able to seek help. And I think it, Basically, it just showed that maybe the problem isn't the patients recognizing that they have a disease, but um, an issue with them not um, not seeking help after that. You mentioned earlier, hey, I'm 
pretty sure that the first articles that I saw, I'm <laughs> paraphrasing, told the truth, yeah. right? Because that was your experience as well. Right. What I'm wondering is perhaps the stigma of mental illness means that the social interactions where you might perceive that prevent the discussion of mental health. So you wouldn't necessarily share, right? Hey, guess what? I'm depressed, right? Um, but if you go and talk to your doctor, you will talk about it if you get there. Again, this is if you actually get there and if you're willing to participate in a study, it sounds like that stigma finally can fade away if nobody else is in the room and you're all alone talking to your doctor. Great. So we were going to actually do a, a case vignette, but we also had so much to kind of introduce this topic that we didn't really do that. I think we were going to do a case vignette, something along the lines of a 25-year-old uh, Chinese-American female goes in with her mother to see the physician. Um, she notes some uh, somatic concerns and not feeling great, but denies depression and really stonewalls the physician when he asks questions. When she visits the physician uh, a month later and he asks the same questions and her mother is not there, she's much more open to talking about depression and recognizes that very well, right? And, and so we we're going to throw out that scenario, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. I forgot. I forgot too. <laughs> so what else did you take away from this study? Because I thought this had really a lot of, of really great thoughts in it. That, that we're looking at this data? Um, I'm trying to think. I, I've read so many articles. I'm trying to remember which ones came from that one. Um, but something that I thought was really interesting that they, they mentioned um, is that, like we said earlier, a stigma plays a big role in whether or not they, um, they'll seek treatment. Um, and a lot of the people responded that they would rather just what they called self-help and they wouldn't seek additional help from from physicians or or tell anyone in their community um, and one other thing that i thought was really interesting is they said that during the interview um, asking the right questions is a huge part as to whether or not these patients will um i guess be more forthcoming or be right, more open mm -hmm. right and so um one specific thing that I thought was really interesting was that they said asking about feelings of uselessness was more effective than asking about guilt, which is the G and Siggy caps and what I, I think I would probably ask if you felt guilty. But I guess if you, they, they've noticed that if you ask more about uselessness, it was more effective than asking whether or not they felt guilty or, or feeling worthless. One of the challenges I have is that the criteria, I'm so like, tuned into Siggy caps and maybe Dice's gaps now um, that I think about guilt only, but that guilt criteria has more to it than simply I feel guilty, right? And I think that's where the uselessness comes in. Um, what are there, any other takeaways? Because I had a couple other that I thought I would mention. I can't quite, I have all these notes taken down, but I can't remember which ones are from this article. <laughs> all right, fair enough, because I think we'll come back to some of these. One okay. of the other takeaways I had from this was um, they made the case that cultural and generational scripts have changed markedly. So the study that they did 20 years prior with 29 patients and now with 190 patients, they felt like there's a change in the way that this population that, that they're looking at is tackling things. And one of the challenges we all talked about before is, well, does this mean that we're looking at... Um, Chinese American populations that have now been in the States a number of years and are becoming more uh, accultured to uh, Western ideas or thoughts, or does this mean that uh, the patients are simply aging and more willing to think about this? Does this mean that the community is changing as a whole? It's hard to know based on, on the, the way we were able to read the data, but I thought it was fascinating that the things that we thought were more true 20 years ago may not have been wrong. They may, may have been right at the time, but maybe those things have changed, right? So, so it's hard to know. And it's also hard to know maybe if we just did a better job looking at the role stigma plays in that kind of a, of a process. So I, I thought that was very fascinating. The other thing that I thought was, was very interesting was where the studies are done matter quite a bit. So we read a number of studies and they would reference different kinds of rates of depression, uh, suicide, and all sorts of different kinds of things that were happening in various populations, but the challenge was that sometimes the studies would reference populations out of Taiwan, sometimes out of China, sometimes in the United States. And I, I don't know that there was ever a, a time when uh, 
the Taiwanese population was looked at, the, the Taiwanese population that had immigrated was looked at differently than the Chinese population that had immigrated. And of course, to lump China into one uh, group itself is, is almost hard to believe because of the regional differences in a country that large as well. It's sort of like saying the United States, there's no difference between the Southeast and the Northwest, right? And, and we couldn't say that either. So, so very, very difficult, very, very big populations, very big pictures kinds of things. The last thing that I thought was really interesting from this study was that somatization, right? So, so this alexithymia idea that really stuck around for a long time until it was studied. Because I don't, I don't think alexithymia had been studied even prior to that. It had been speculated more. And I think this, this study kind of looked at alexithymia itself, the ability to recognize those, those emotions. And one of the things that I thought was very interesting is they said, hey, guess what? Everybody somaticizes depression. It's not just Chinese Americans, right? Yeah. If you go to Utah, some portion of the people will have somatization of their mental health issues. Some people will not. And it's kind of like everywhere else. Some people do, some people don't. And I think what I left with was the impression that the percentages of who somaticizes and who doesn't is roughly the same. Does that sound about? Yeah, and I mean, I was, I was surprised by that, but I also, after reading them, like that makes sense because when I'm in clinic, um, people, um, people don't, don't straight up tell you that, you know, they're feeling depressed and there are people who will just come in because of um, somatic symptoms and I, I hadn't thought about it that way before but it makes sense. Yeah I think I think we sometimes one of the things I started to wonder is maybe we're focusing on the wrong issue if we're looking at Chinese Americans necessarily and maybe what we should be looking at is generally speaking how do people do this right uh, maybe a bigger across the board although i um, on the other hand we do need to understand how to be more culturally sensitive to our populations that we're working with right so this, I, I sort of kind of went back and forth like it'd be really nice to know how do i tackle you know, the average um, caucasian american guy that comes in from rural southern utah who is very very different than somebody who is asian american who lives in the boston area in a tight-knit um, Chinese American community. And maybe there's some uh, common factor in there that I can use all the time with all of my patients, because in some ways, I think that's what I was left with after I read that. We have these common things that we just have to be careful with every patient, right? right. Kind of leads me to um, one of the things that I, I really wanted to tackle, and, and Chris, I'm going to have you jump in here. One of the challenges that we saw with people saying, I don't need help, I'm just going to go do some self-help, which, as I read it, wasn't psychological intervention. It was, I'm going to go to some sort of group and hope that that community kind of feeling pulls me together. The, the data that we found mentioned in a lot of the different articles we read was that our, because of the barriers to health care, whether those are financial, whether those are cultural, um, whatever, they, whatever else they may be, depression seems to be longer lasting in our Chinese-American patients and probably deeper or more severe. Chris, you, you came across some data that I was thrilled that you came across. Do you wanna share what the implications of um, untreated depression is? Um, and I think there's, there's a phrase in schizophrenia we use, DUP, duration of untreated schizophrenia, or un, sorry, DUP, duration of untreated psychosis. And I, I assume there's a similar phrase in yeah. depression, but maybe you can kind D, of tell us yeah, a little D, bit about the- DUD, duration of untreated depression. Um, so yeah, none of the things I'm going to mention here are related specifically to any specific population. Um, it's just, I'm guessing like Americans or people in general um, that have been st uh, studied for depression. Um, but yeah, so as far as the kind of like um, outcomes related to untreated depression, um, I'm going to start off with talking about kind of like um, neurologic changes. Um, so there's um, kind of a laundry list of different neurologic changes that they found more associated and they, knew, they don't know if they're actually the effect of untreated or depression, um, but those include um, like a smaller hypothalamus. Um, uh, let's see, um, changes in the HPA axis, um, changes in other um, uh, parts of the brain, such as the frontal cortex and subcortical structures. Um, also, the number and density of neurons in depressed people is um, decreased. Um, the telomeres are shortened. Um, there's 
um, irregular circadian rhythms and increased inflammatory processes, just to name a few. So there's a lot of kind of neurological changes that very likely could be caused by um, depression. And so or, or may cause depression, right? Yeah. Yeah. And untreated. Go ahead. I yeah. So untreated depression um, kind of in effect would would make someone more likely to have these throughout their life or develop um, these changes in their, their brain. Um, um, more, more as far as like practical, um, or like affecting their, um, day-to-day life. Um, untreated depression is associated with lower quality of life in general, a higher risk of suicide, and then, uh, worse prognoses for other medical conditions such as diabetes or things like that. Um, is it is there is it also more difficult to get a recovery the longer somebody is depressed? It seems like I've read that somewhere yeah, before, so but I don't I'm know if you came across. Go into that. Yeah. So um, the um, yeah. So the the what I looked at was saying that um, as far as kind of like worse outcomes with untreated depression, it's it's more so in severe depression than it is mild and moderate depression, um, and so. The um, so severe depression, if left untreated, um, has um, let's see, has a uh, like worse um, worse outcomes, and then so if if someone isn't treated, then or if someone goes a period of time without being treated for their depression, then when they are treated, it will take. Um, longer for them to respond to the treatment and then also they will they will be in treatment longer like they won't reach remission as quickly as someone who started the treatment um, sooner very good cody i'm gonna i'm gonna throw you a a low yield question here that put you puts you totally on the spot can you name a mental health disorder that is a risk factor for development of cardiovascular disease i'd say depression Going out on a limb there, right? Yeah. We'll put in a plug for the podcast yesterday where we tied uh, depression to uh, negative outcomes in uh, coronary artery bypass graft surgery, right? Mm-hmm. Especially so, recovery of those patients. And yeah. So uh, especially recovery and maybe the risk of developing that as well. And All so this speaks a little bit to, uh, that's the real life example we had just yesterday of uh, what you're talking about. Speaking of suicide, you also sent me an article on suicide, Rebecca. This is um, Dr. Lydia Lee, I think. Tell me a little bit about the Pine study and the group that she uh, pulled data from. Let me just pull it up really quick. Um, basically, the conclusion of why well, I should start with the Pine study. If um, you want, I can do that while you're looking for the conclusions. I think we might have kind of split the duties up that way, so I threw you under the bus there. Attendings do that, don't they? <laughs> so this was uh, 3,000, a little over 3,000 Chinese adults age 60 plus in the Chicago area, the greater Chicago area. And uh, it looks like they've published data on this population in the past. And uh, to set this up, they note that the Asian American population, um, females over the age of 65, that's the highest rate of suicide of any female group, right? And that's at uh, 6.4 per 100,000. Uh, suicide rates are always reported in per 100,000. Asian American men are over almost double that, a little more than double that, at 13.8 per 100,000. And so this study did a questionnaire looking at well, how often do a Chinese American um, populations have suicidal thoughts. So again, we're mixing numbers here a little bit from Asian Americans to Chinese Americans, but the the big picture that we just gave you was Asian American. And I think this study looked at at least suicidal thinking, but not suicide. Tell us, tell us what you found in that. So they found that 4.1% of the sample that they, they looked at had a 30 day suicide ideation in comparison to 2.7 of Americans reported, um, 30-day suicide ideation. So I thought that was, I mean, that's not quite double, but. Stands out, doesn't it? Yeah. I think they found that to be statistically significant. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a little more than one person 
compared to the population, one out of 100 people more. And that, that starts to add up when you start thinking about the numbers of populations. Um, they had a lot of factors they looked at. What, what seems to be causing this? And, and I think they did regression analysis to try and make sure that they weren't just you know, throwing whatever against a wall and seeing what stuck. Um, and they did this a couple of different ways the way I read the article. And so it seems like their finding is a reasonable finding, but they found one item that really stood out as being associated with 30 day suicide thinking, suicidal thinking. What was that? So it was actually, um, this was self-reported, mm -hmm. uh, self-reported discrimination. Yeah. Did they, did they have an idea about what that meant or why that was so important? I read, and I thought this was the case, I'm not sure. And again, this gets back to what we were talking about earlier about changes in populations, immigrant populations over the time that they're here and maybe the nature of the community. But apparently the, they referred to this as elder, elder um, suicide, elder Chinese Americans. They used this word elder, I think, in the study. And, and the way I read this, they felt like that erosion of community and loss of um, respect that would be normally present in uh, Chinese American communities and perhaps Chinese communities and Taiwanese communities, um, that maybe that was part of why that was such a damaging insult. And I think those, those incidents of, of discrimination were also within the last 30 days too, if I remember right. Does that? Yeah. So, um, I think, I, I think it was this article had cited in another article that I later on looked up and it goes into a little bit more detail about this, this discrimination and, and social stigma as well. And mm -hmm. one, one big thing that really jumped out at me that I hadn't really thought about before that something that I always see in Taiwan that I don't feel like I've heard of as much here. It's this concept of saving face. Mm -hmm. Um, it basically means that it's a sim symbolically represents someone's um, social status or prestige. Um, and then you, they care a lot about that and they don't want to lose that basically. And, and so I think it comes up in, in discrimination as well as just the social stigma of mental illnesses. And that's a huge um, reason why people don't want to seek help and also I think it should, um, has, also has a higher rate of um, suicide and that, um, yeah. That kind of fits into the story that we're building, doesn't it, about how stigma plays into this, saving face plays into this, um, self-report where you are comfortable reporting those things and, uh, and um, how discrimination, which may not be as much racial discrimination as it might be um, age-related discrimination, it sounds like. I, I don't know. Any ideas on that? About, about the age the, the, so, the, so the discrimination that is the self-report mm -hmm. in the Lydia Lee article, that sounds like it could be as much um, age-related discrimination as it is racial discrimination. But it wasn't clear to me that there was um, specific about racial discrimination being the the factor that made that suicide rate increase. And what you're talking about with saving face mm -hmm. sounds like that could also be related to that community sense, that loss of community and so forth. I don't know, just questions I have, I think, after reading <laughs> this. Let's go ahead and move forward. You sent me another article. Uh, a meta, it was called a meta-analysis, uh, looking at the prevalence of depression in, I think, only Chinese American populations. Is that Asian, correct? Asian was it Asian American yeah. populations? I had a tough time with this study. <laughs> I appreciated the work that put it, that went into it, but I had a tough time with it. You did too. I mean, I, when I first read, I mean, the title it sounded great to me. I was uh -huh. like, this sounds this sounds perfect. And um, reading more into it, I got really lost with. All the they all the different studies they used and how they calculated the the statistics. I got super lost and I'm I'm not sure how. I think it was because of all the different studies. It made it really hard for them to come up with a with a good conclusion or something that they could extract from all those studies as well. I felt like it was a, a tough group of studies to try and do a meta analysis on as well. So I understood them to take 
widely varying populations. And this was actually a non-clinical setting. So all of the other data we've looked at is in clinical settings, right? We've pulled these people into a clinic and here's what we find when we pull people into a clinic. And so this, this article by Dr. Kim is really a phenomenal attempt to figure out what are the baseline rates of depression in a group of people that don't wanna tell you how they're, they're feeling because of stigma, right? And don't, wanna, don't, don't tend to participate in treatment across the board because of a number of other barriers in, in addition to stigma. Um, and so they grouped populations that were old populations, young populations, college populations, mm-hmm. um, I think gay populations was one other one. And then um, were, were there other populations as well? So it was like these specific populations they tried to cobble together to get mm-hmm. a prevalence. And then the other thing that was kind of challenging was they used the, those different studies, used the BDI, we talked about the Beck Depression Inventory yesterday, they used the CESD, we talked about that yesterday. They used the PHQ, we've talked about that about a billion times in our podcasts now. They used um, the GDS, which is the Geriatric Depression Scale. And then I, I was a little bit confused by this. There were 14 studies that used criteria, like they went through the DSM and used those criteria, but 13 of those 14 studies, or 14 of those 15 studies were the same study reporting the data in different ways. And so they excluded all of those maybe, and I wasn't sure about that. And when push came to shove, they found some sort of rates of depression between two and 70%, roughly. Yeah. What do you make of those numbers? I didn't know what to make of those numbers. Oddly enough, I didn't know what to make of those numbers either. And I, I think that's the hard part. One of the things I didn't understand and I tried to think about was they made the case that screening for depression will give you higher rates of depression if you're assuming a screen equals a depression than an actual interview with the patient. So maybe the 30% rates that they were looking at, I think their conclusion was the actual presence of depressive symptoms is somewhere around 30% in Asian populations. That prevalence of symptoms might correlate to somewhat lower number of depression. And I I don't know, at the end of the day, I had a tough time figuring out what to, I didn't know what to do with the data. I think, I think the main, I'm guessing the main reason you brought this up was kind of my, at least my frustration with when I was trying to research articles, there's a lot kind of like this, a lot of people tried to look into it, but it was just really hard to, it's just a hard, hard thing to study, I think. Very, very difficult. And I think we take the data as a great starting point with still some um, limitations. You sent, uh, let's see, I've got, how many more articles here? Uh, one article and one slide presentation, interestingly enough. Let's, let's tackle the article first. I was, okay. I was like doing the happy dance when I saw the title of this article. And I started reading it. It says uh, what, something along the lines of parent perceptions of youth mental illness, 2020. And this was mm-hmm. Dr. Cindy Liu. And I thought, we got it. This is the home run. <laughs> Tell me about the study. Okay, so I, I was also super excited because I was trying to find some articles that were more recent. Um, and when this popped up, I got, I got super excited as well. Um, so basically what they did, um, and this is where I kind of got a little bit disappointed, but in their methods section, they took 18 parents um, who had children, um, youth children, so I think they said 13 to 21 years old, um, and they, who had, um, yeah, who had children in that age range, and they gave them these five vignettes um, depicting depression um, with, an, with certain features and whatnot, and gave them a series of questions about causes and um, their possible diagnosis. Um, and then they, these, these, uh, these question interviews were analyzed, and this is where they got their data. And so <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think when I read 18 parents, I was like, well, wait a minute. So you just kind of randomly picked 18 people and decided this is representative of a population that was hard for me. And then to say this is you know, representative of a population based on some vignettes that I think were validated in use in Australia originally. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? Yeah. One of the things that was interesting, I guess, my takeaway from this was that um, – seemed like maybe they saw these 18 
parents who all had to have been born in China, um, maybe they really got it with schizophrenia, right? It sounded like if you have a vignette about schizophrenia, they say, yep, mental illness, got to take care of it. If it's depression, it seemed like they trended a little bit more to the somatic side in this 18, population of 18. And the one thing that was really interesting was attention to suicide was almost zero. And I think that fits a little bit in with some of the things we've talked about, this high rate of suicide in Asian populations, uh, lack of access to care, and perhaps saving face. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't recall if you mentioned that saving face, suicide might be one of those ways to save face. I don't know if that's... I don't think I mentioned it, but yeah, in one of the studies, they're saying that that's one way to maintain your respect or dignity, and it's one way to to not... I guess, disappoint your family or something like that. And that plays into this as well, I think. Uh, Let's move on to the last. um, This is a slide deck, but this is available through who? Through the National Institute of Health, National Institute of Mental Health, NMIH. It was the SAMHSA. SAMHSA, okay. Mm -hmm. Substance abuse. And Mental Health Services Administration. Yeah, so big study, big, big data set. Mm-hmm. But it's a hard data set. Do you want to tell me a little bit about this data set that we've got and the highlights you took from it? Um, so this, just a little background on, on this study. So this was actually done in, in 2019. And basically they, they sample from all 50 states and um, they have face-to-face interviewers um, who go out and, and ask people questions. Um, and those were for less sensitive questions. For more sensitive questions, they actually had um, audio computer-assisted self-interviewing for these sensitive um, questions, I guess. And they covered civilian, non-institutionalized populations age 12 and older. And so I think it's it's a pretty good broad spectrum. Um, big. This is a big, yeah. big set of interviews. Lots of work goes into this. And so what I found super interesting, this one looked into substance abuse as well as mental illness. And what Dr. Roundy actually pointed out to me and I thought found super interesting that they have a, I guess a bar chart kind of, mm-hmm. um, at the end where they pointed out that um, patients with any mental illnesses, the um, there's a huge gap between, I guess, how should I put this? Um, there's a 76.7% of patients who were diagnosed with a mental illness was not being treated. And this is looking specifically at Asians, populations, and um, um, Native Pacific Hawaiians Islanders. and other Pacific Islanders, mm-hmm. the NHOPI. Yeah. Now, I was shocked by this. So, so this is a study that's done yearly, too. I think. I think there might have been years when it wasn't done, but but generally speaking, this has been done for most of the last 10 years. You can look at these really great bar charts and graphs that show changes over time. There are a couple of really great trends in the data. One is that there's more medication-assisted treatment for substance misuse disorders. There seems to be some reduction in alcohol use and opioids in, in this very large and, and very mixed population. This isn't, you know, I, I, I think it's hard to extrapolate, extrapolate this to Chinese-American populations or any really specific population, it's hard to do that. But there are some pretty good trends there with substance misuse. More troubling were some of the trends in serious mental illness. So almost doubling uh, the finding, this this SMI spike in the 18 to 25 year olds, uh, really tremendous. A lot more people who are dealing with severe mental illness uh, in that population. And then this change in depression, generally stable in ages 18 to 49, but seems to be increasing in some of the other populations, like the 12 to 17 being seen a little more often and ages overpopulate, over 50 being seen a little more often. Um, but maybe even you know, in addition to that slide where most people just aren't getting treated, somewhere between 70 and 90%, depending on the illness, there's a whole lot of suicidal thinking going on too. And it's dramatically increased, both in 18 to 25 year olds and 26 to 49 year olds. There's just this dramatic increase in thinking about suicidality, increase in planning suicide, and increase in attempts in the younger group. Not as many increases, not really increasing in attempts in the older group, but just a whole lot more suicidality across the board. Something that's easily accessible and and an interesting data set that's put together by SAMHSA. Yeah, 
I, I was fascinated by that. Other takeaways you had from that? I think it, I mean, I think my, my biggest thing is just to, sh I think we need to, we can do better about, um, I don't know how we would do this, but maybe educating um, this population about treatments and what they might entail and, and how they can seek help, I think would be a good way, a good place to start, I think. Yeah, those barriers to care seem to be the primary factor I think getting getting Asian American populations, Chinese American populations into care. And I think that's probably true for more than simply this immigrant population. I think mm -hmm. there are probably a lot of other populations where access to care is as big an issue as any of the cultural barriers or, or uh, misunderstandings that might be present. Um, Liz, I think we did a pretty good job covering those articles. I really liked the way you built this, the way we went about this. Was there anything else that, that we had talked about or that you prepared for that I didn't ask you about or that we didn't talk I think, about? I think we covered most of it. <laughs> Good. Then I think that means we should kind of get the takeaways. How about if we start with you, Cody? What, what would you take away from this podcast? So I would take away that it's just depression is such a huge thing that we need to be more aware of and basically be aware of those populations too that might be at higher risk of not coming in for help not so much the other certain populations have it more than others but who's getting treated and who's getting the help they need yeah good uh, good uh, good thing to be aware of christopher any take-homes that um, you have i think my takeaway is just like it's difficult to sift through the research and find out what's like currently true like you guys found um and then find also finding uh, good studies. So I think being kind of having that skill is good to um, reading like statistics and knowing how to read research articles and know what to look for in them. I think that's important. One of the things I, I so enjoy about doing this is it makes me go into the data. It makes me look at things that I wouldn't normally look at, right? I don't know that I would normally look at depression in Chinese American populations and yet when my students pull these topics out and I go into this dive into the literature, it's fun for me not only to learn more and do it through the literature, but it's also fun to watch students as they have exactly that experience. And generally speaking, and I, I don't know that I've made this as explicit with the three of you as a group, I tell my students, you can look at uh, up to date, but that's not where this comes from, right? You have to go to the literature to make these talks happen, to make these podcasts happen. And over and over, I have students that tell me outside the podcast exactly what you're saying. I had so much fun going down the rabbit hole. I found stuff that was very interesting. There's articles that don't agree with what you know, we think we know. Things seem to change. And even sometimes we find stuff that the board prep exam uh, it doesn't seem to be accurate based on maybe the way we're reading the articles, right? So, so it's always been really fascinating to all of us as we've done this. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that process or found that worthy of comment. Yeah, not completely enjoyed, frustrated. <laughs> and <laughs> some enjoyment, some frustration. Yeah. I think that's very, very reasonable. And uh, Becca. Um, I think my big takeaway, so I actually, I don't know what I'm going to be going into. I think I want to go into some kind of primary care, but I'm not sure. But I think this just goes to show that Jan on shelf exam it's probably going to be pretty cut and dry as far as SIGI caps goes like your criteria will be written out for you um, but I think it's just it's a thing that we all need to keep in mind regardless of what specialty we decide to go into is just to to keep depression in mind and be able to spot it and you can be the first person to spot it and, and really help someone out a lot. Yeah I think that's such a great way of thinking about this and, and I think uh, Cody's podcast yesterday spoke to that. I think your podcast today is a, a great way of thinking about that. And I really like the way that there was sort of this overlap between the idea that depression is depression. And you see it in a, so many different settings and so many different ways. And there's so many different kinds of avenues and ways that it, you, it can come to you or, or not come to you. And I, I really like that too. Um, the coolest thing you learned doing this uh, podcast, getting prepared for this. Coolest thing I learned? Yeah, I usually don't ask that question, do I? <laughs> Gosh, 
I think about that for a second. Um, While you're thinking about that, I'll give my takeaway then, if that's okay. So my takeaway was, I don't think we've done a good job of talking about what happens prior to this podcast with untreated depression. And I think that was actually very, very important that we finally brought that up. And I also like that we took a little more time to talk about um, Dice's gap as opposed to Siggy caps. Dice's gaps. Dice's gaps. So that gets us that ninth criteria that we've left off with, with Siggy caps. And I think that's pretty important to make sure that we recognize that this statement, I feel depressed, is a criteria for depression. And it's easy to miss that, I think. So, so those were some of my takeaways. The other takeaways I had was, what a great topic. I'm glad that you picked this one. Um, I, I tend to feel that way every time, though, so it's hard for me to, <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's pretty normal. And also, how difficult it is to do this research in this population, right? Um, I, and I, I think my takeaway is we don't have good data, so in a way, we treat these patients like we might everybody else. We're sensitive to the idea that not everybody wants to talk about depression. We try to make access to care as, as, as possible, as, as, to make it possible for our, all of our patients. When we get patients that have screened positive for depression, we check the criteria to see if they're meeting criteria. We provide treatments for depression, right? We do that for everybody. And I think if this helped me be more aware that when I'm providing that for everybody, sometimes I need to be more aware of stigma, right? I need to be thinking about that, how that might affect the way that people talk to me. And I don't think that's just Chinese American populations. So those were kind of the takeaways I had from this. Lots of takeaways for me. So Rebecca, coolest thing you kind of learned as you went through this process? I think there are two big things that I, I just kind of just surprised me. I think the main main thing was how shocked I was in the direction that this went versus how I, when this, when I first had this idea where I thought it was going to go and I think it just it just shows that you need to do your own research and it's not just you can't find just one article and and be okay with that you might need to look into where they got their sources and I think I learned a lot from from that and you teaching me to go into what did you call it the the bibliography or the references yeah, yeah, the references yeah. and and going to see to find the original article where their data was originally from I think I learned a lot from that and something else that I thought was just kind of fun was reading through all these articles about cultural differences I feel like I've learned a lot just about myself and certain actions that I do that I didn't know was different or from other people and that I didn't realize how much um, that culture has impacted me and, and how I tend to act and how I respond to certain things. So I thought, I thought that was really cool. You made my day because it sounds like you had a good experience. I, I always worry that projects like this are difficult, but hearing that you had a good experience with it, which I think most students do, very, very, very happy to hear that. I think that's a great ending for this podcast. On that note, guys, team out. Team out. <laughs>